It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a hideaway of happiness in a hypocritical world. Ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm the co-founder of the same website. I'm also a nurse practitioner, and my nickname is Nurse Amy. And the purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to mention the hostess with the most is right. Uh, If you say so. You are indeed. (laughs) We have active medical licenses. We are medical professionals, a doctor and a nurse practitioner. But that doesn't mean we don't go outside not outside the house of conventional medical wisdom. We do go outside, sometimes not just outside, but not even in orbit around the same planet as the conventional medical wisdom. <laughs> That's true. But we're not crazy. No. Take it from me. I tested you. You're not crazy. (laughs) Okay. You're officially not crazy. Well, that's what it's going to take to be medically self-reliant is sometimes to go outside the conventional medical wisdom, but to have a fundamental knowledge of what is the human body and how it works. And all that stuff. But before we start, you better listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to us. But if you hear a lone voice echoing in the vast wilderness of the unprepared, it might be us hoping someone will hear our message. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad. Well, anyhow, if we didn't have enough reason to social distance as it is, now we have rioting in dozens of major cities. Makes you want to live outside the city, that's for sure. Maybe outside the planet might be safer. And we have curfews. And curfews. Here, we have curfews. Yeah, down here in South Florida, even though... A lot of excitement is happening in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And interesting things are certainly going on there, like the majority of the city council wanting to dismantle the police department. And interesting to know that that majority is a veto-proof majority. Even if the mayor is against it and vetoes it, he can be voted down. Mayors in L.A., mayors in New York City, they're also cutting funding to their police departments. Are they crazy? Did you really want to get me started on this? Just a little. <laughs> Just give us a taste of how you feel. Um, how I feel is that we should not take away funds from the underfunded police departments. And we do have a lot of police officers who are listening. And we completely support you. What we do need to do, as in every profession, including doctors and nurses and lawyers and financiers and marketing and IT and everywhere else in the world, there are bad actors, and that's what we'll call them. Those are the people that need to go. And what the good police officers, which are 99.9% of them, need to cough up the bad ones. 
We almost need to have a, a I'm going to tell on you system. And those people need to be weeded out who were perhaps bullies in high school and to go home and kick the dog and beat the wife and then go to work and are overly aggressive towards the people that they should be defending and, and maybe arresting, but in a less violent way. We need to weed out the bad actors. In every profession, we all need to weed out the bad actors. Bad doctors need to be told on too, and bad nurses need to be told on. Everyone needs to speak up and stand up for your own profession, whatever that might be, and try to get rid of the people who are giving you a bad name. And those are the ones we need to get rid of. And once we do that and we hire the good people and we keep the good people and we pay the good people appropriate salaries, I don't think police make enough money, honestly. So defunding is the complete opposite of what you need to do. If you want to attract good people who have good hearts and need to feed their family and want to do good for their community, instead of telling them to go to college and be something else, if they give them a good salary, that might be what they go into. And you have suddenly um, not only really good cops, but you also have amazing cops because that's their career and they love it and they get paid enough. This is a very dangerous job in most cities. Yes, absolutely. No matter where you are, there's a chance that you might not make it home at night. Um, you can't say the same thing really for, for most other professions. If you're an accountant, you're probably going to make it home every day. But that's not true for police officers. They do have instances, even in small towns, where their lives are on the line. They need to have better pay, good benefits. They need to have a trust between them and the communities. And I think speaking to the communities instead of violence, either way, is the way to solve these problems. Open and honest and good communication. And the community shouldn't be angry at the police officers that are trying to communicate right exactly. would you think we need to have town halls we need to have um, representatives from churches and and different groups speaking openly with the police in calm rational dialogue protesting is legal in this world but rioting or i shouldn't say this world in this country you can't protest in hong kong apparently but rioting and violence and hurting businesses in areas where you live that's just whoever's doing that i do not believe honestly i do not believe those people are from that community i think those are outside actors that have been brought in to cause chaos to disrupt things and and really bring down the society and, and what we have built well i would think that in an environment such as this a lot of police officers would be writing their resignation letters and taking interviews and at least outside the main city. They're, they're being vilified and good people, good police officers who are good fathers and, and brothers and sisters and their mothers and their daughters. Those people are being vilified because of a few people and we need to get rid of those few bad actors what do you think the politicians of minneapolis will do after they defund the police department or rather dismantle I, the police department for security i don't know what they're going to do who who's who's going to arrest people who do bad things and there are those people and they're certainly not any less than there were 10 years ago 
I have I to mean, tell you, if I was a police officer in Minneapolis today, right now, at this moment, I would write my resignation, I would move, and I would go find a job somewhere else where I'm respected. Because there are towns that do respect their police officers, and they have community communication, and and they're they're part of the upstanding members of the community. And they don't get a lot of bricks or bottles thrown at them. No. So. I, I think they should all quit. I think every single police officer in Minneapolis, you know what? You're thinking about defunding us. We may not have a job. I think they should all quit. By the end of today, they should all put in their resignations and let that city deal with whatever they're going to deal with. Thankfully, the mayor is sticking up for them, but obviously they don't have a lot of support. I'd leave. I really would leave. Absolutely. I'd walk away. You don't see the attacks on law enforcement officers in the news, yet there are hundreds of them that wound up in in the hospitals getting treatment for injuries. Because violence begets violence. That's true. All of this... One person who doesn't even live in a community comes in, gets, you know, bust in or drives in, you know, says, oh, you know, this is great. I get to stir up some trouble here and... You know, I hate the cops, and I'm driving in. And then suddenly the town that he's not even part of, or the community he's not even part of, or she isn't even part of, stirs up trouble. That person throws a brick. They get a person standing next to them. They hand them a brick. Say, hey, you throw this too. I'll throw one. And then they've got a whole pile of them. And then they've got a whole group of people throwing it. Those people didn't even have bricks before that per- bad person showed up. They didn't even think about doing it because they were just trying to protest. And now suddenly the protest has become violent. And then what happens is more and more people become violent because it's, like you said, it's spreading. And then the police have to do something. So now they're forced to to be violent. And then it gets out of hand. Everyone's stressed, high anxiety. They don't know, you know, if this is going to stop, if something worse is going to be thrown. And all of this, despite... The demands of the protesters being met, 100% as far as I, as I know. The officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck is being charged with murder. Every other officer, including one on the job for only four days, and who voiced concern uh, to that officer yeah, that the said, knee was Yeah, he said, hey, let's flip him over. And the guy right. with his, his uh, knee on the neck said, no, he's so, the one who needs to be charged with murder. And, the two, and I think there was another person on their back. And then I'm sorry, the person who is standing watching it, oh, this is just awful. It is, it's an awful situation. Bad people did bad things. They just happened to be police officers. There are bad people who do bad things all over the world, like I said, in every profession, and we need to weed them out, and police departments need to be speaking to the communities how can we build better trust how can we make you understand when we arrest people for doing bad things we will do our best to follow rules to not be overly aggressive and overly violent but on the other hand the community members who may do those bad things also need to understand that if you fight back and you threaten a police officer and they think that their life is in danger, something terrible might just happen to you. There's to be a mutual understanding. If you don't do terrible things, you probably won't have violence. But we need to get out out of the police departments, the people who go overboard, the bullies, the mean, the nasty. And we need to make the community understand you know, we're going to do our best as the police department to make sure that you are well treated. But the fact that the demands of the protesters were met 
but not didn't all. matter to them. I understand. Didn't that. matter to a lot of them. They, they have s- other demands, though. They really do have. It's it's much further than Floyd. It started off that way, but they do have more demands. They want less violence from the police departments, and I and I get that. I actually understand that, but it's it's not every police officer. Like I said, I believe ninety nine point nine of them follow the rules. They're not extra violent. They're very polite. They speak to people in a calm manner. Sometimes they're being screamed at, and they still speak in a calm manner. There are really good police men and women out there. You can't just tell me that there's some kind of silent majority of cops out there that want to kill minorities. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's not. ridiculous. And I also don't think most of this is racially motivated. I believe that a bad person who might be a bad cop, that bad person, like I said, also kicks the dog, beats his child, beats his wife. They're just bad people. They're just bad people overall. And they're bad people to everyone. Maybe they work in a community that's mostly black. And the people that they run into most and maybe have interactions of being of arresting them are mostly black because that's the community. And so it seems like they're racist, but they might not be racist. They just are evil people. And, and racism is evil in, in every way, whether it's racism towards Hispanics, Asians, um, people who have green eyes, people who have blue eyes, people who have, you know, six toes, whatever it is that you're against should be out of the fact or, or out of the personality of someone who is policing should not be a factor. And if they find that somebody's like that, they need to get rid of them. They need to be fired immediately. Absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent. But you have to remember if it takes just one event to set the country on fire and we're opposed to having our own protective institutions in place, if that happens, can we remain stable as a society? I'm really beginning to wonder. That's just one of the reasons that you need to be medically prepared to deal with traumatic injuries. You just don't know when an implacable mob, no matter how good the cause, will come to your town. And it doesn't matter if your townsfolk are people, or peaceful people, there are plenty of not-so-peaceful people who aren't that way. They are going to be shipped in, and they'll have no connections at all to the place just be there to tear it up and yet we're too polite a society in general to do much about this to call that out that means a lot of injuries that the family medic may have to treat and that's without much help from the government if you don't have medical supplies in your storage get to work now to get some tools for your survival medicine cabinet if you haven't learned your lesson about the infectious disease despite the pandemic i would suggest you get masks gloves rest of the personal protection equipment that you might need now, the bottom line is that there's blood in the water, sharks are smelling it, and if you're smart, you're going to learn how to swim fast and be ready for the times to come. You know, I didn't feel this powerfully about it a decade ago when I first started noticing how unprepared we are, but boy, I've become more militant since then, and I just can't make the case for medical preparedness more aggressively these days. Don't be stupid, be prepared. Well, in COVID news, the country of New Zealand has declared that its last case of coronavirus has recovered, making it the first country to have no active COVID cases and declare the pandemic in the country to be over. Wow, that's awesome. It's got 5 million people in it, the country of New Zealand, and it's opening sports stadiums, scheduling concerts, weddings, weddings, retail, hospitality, all sorts of stuff without restrictions. It seems that 
The only cases are going to be those, I guess, imported from elsewhere uh, as air travel is lifted, but that hasn't happened yet. And in reality, they still close, their borders are still closed, except for folks who live in, who are citizens of New Zealand or residents of New Zealand. Also in the news, hydroxychloroquine, the antimalarial drug used to treat coronavirus that has fallen out of favor and public view as studies uh, have suggested that it does little to treat infection. And this is something that it sort of crossed my cookies because a lot of these studies aren't using zinc. The purpose of the hydroxychloroquine is to jumpstart the antiviral effects of zinc. And these studies have mostly ignored zinc and people just don't seem to realize that sometimes we have to use combinations of drugs to get the desired effect. On Wednesday, the New England Journal of Medicine actually published the results of a University of Minnesota trial that showed the drug did not have much effect on people with COVID-19. I just really, I just really don't understand what I have to do or what people have to do to have these doctors put zinc in their studies. I, I'm hoping that there are going to be a lot more studies. I understand there are about, to about 50 studies right now about chloroquine, and I certainly hope that some of them include zinc. Uh, I know of one that is doing that. For sure, there's going to be a very big study, but it won't be ready, at least the results won't be ready until December of this year. So uh, too little, too late probably in that case. Not all researchers have given up on the drug. I want to tell you that. The recent developments show that it's not yet dead as a potential weapon against COVID-19, especially as a preventative for people who are not yet exposed to the virus. Maybe it has a preventative effect. That would be pretty awesome. Interestingly enough, a study that said hydroxychloroquine doesn't work has actually just been retracted. On Thursday, three of the four authors retracted a widely publicized study about the use of the drug in coronavirus patients. They found COVID-19 patients who took the drug were more likely to die. And after publication, however, there was a lot of criticism over their data. When the company that supplied the data declined to publish all the data for review, three of the four authors of the study itself said, based on this, we can no longer vouch for the veracity, veracity, the truth, in other words, of the primary data sources. A day earlier, World Health Organization recommended that its researchers continue to study the drug's potential use against coronavirus, actually restarting a trial that was paused. And researchers across the USA are still testing the drug. As I said, there are at least 17 are testing, whether it may be a preventative, there are probably 40 more that are still underway involving patients who are already infected. I mean, and the truth is we don't know what the end result of all these studies will be, but I mean, a decades old drug like hydroxychloroquine, we know how it works in the body. We know that it potentiates the use, the effect, antiviral effect of zinc. And well, you know, I just think that it is worth having around. It's something that's probably 30 times cheaper than the next alternative. And if it has any success, we should probably consider it as a possibility for treatment. I mean, it's known to have side effects, including heart arrhythmias and muscle weakness, things like that. But it's considered, even in this Minnesota, Minneapolis trial that said that it wasn't particularly effective, it said that the drug did not show any 
unsafe nature. They said they said that hydroxychloroquine at the doses they used it at is generally safe. So they the uh, researchers actually quote and I'm quoting this. They say although the drug did not show a statistically significant benefit when people took it immediately after exposure, it may still have a benefit for prevention prior to exposure, and it is generally safe. So how about that? Hey, we're glad to welcome today Terry Blackmore, author of the book Antigenic Shift, which actually we've talked about antigenic shifts often enough, and certainly in the pandemic, I'm sure there's been an antigenic shift that caused the COVID-19 disease and the SARS-CoV-2 virus to develop and spread throughout the world. Terry was born in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. His father was a World War II veteran, served in England, France, Germany, Holland during the war. Well, thank you for your service. His mother was a war bride from Darford, Kent, England. Actually, I've been in that area, and it's actually very nice. He grew up in the small farming and lumbering community known as Burnt River, Ontario. Served in the Royal Canadian Air Force, has worked in the aviation and transportation sectors. He loves the outdoors, hiking, camping, hunting, and fishing. Antigenic Shift is his first book, the first book of the Pandemic series. His inspiration to write came from people like Jeff Motes, who we have had on this show. And so without further ado, let's welcome Terry Blackmore of Antigenic Shift. Hey, Terry, you there? There I am. Sounds great. Listen, I really loved your book, Antigenic Shift, and I'm glad that you were able to come on with us. We're going to talk about your book a little bit, and of course, post-apocalyptic fiction writers, boy, we need to be good storytellers. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your personal story. Who are you and what inspired you to start writing? Well, let's see. Where do I start there? Well, I'm an older fellow and I, I wanted to write this book from the perspective of, a, of an older person. Most books we read are, you know, the main characters are younger folks. And I thought, well, let's have some older folks. And uh, I'm an ex-Air Force guy, so I have a, an Air Force background. I draw on a little bit of that knowledge in my writing, I guess. And, and I love the outdoors, of course. I like camping, hunting, fishing, and I'm a preparedness fellow myself. I, I follow a lot of you folks as well. I follow a lot of people on, on YouTube and, and read a lot of blogs and so on on that topic. And I've read a lot of books on prepping and post-apocalyptic books. If these guys can write one, why don't I give it a try? So I, I did. Well, I think that's pretty awesome to take on that kind of a challenge, to write an entertaining book that especially that is a series that goes on for more than one book. Pretty big project. I really, really like the fact that your main characters aren't, for the most part, six foot four and 240 pounds, have 18-inch biceps. It's nice that you have people that are normal-sized and what I would consider average people that are put into a tough situation. Yes, I wanted it to be that way. Again, the older people and quite a few characters in these stories. And I wanted to have people that were very prepared and, and completely unprepared and display the contrast between the two. As I thought that would be interesting to have that point of view in there, the things that can happen to people based on those. Well, I think you did a great job doing that. Now, your book is titled Anagenic Shift. If you're a regular listener out there to our podcast, you've heard us talk about anagenic shifts on a number of occasions, but could you explain why you gave your book that title? I come up with that name because there's been a lot in the news lately about the Arctic warming up with, with global warming, and the causes of global warming are, that's debatable, of course, And but, but the fact of the matter is the Arctic is warming up, and lots of things are percolating up out of the Arctic permafrost that, that have been buried for millennia. 
including diseases. There was an interesting article in the BBC, and I, I should send you a link to that. Maybe you've already read it because you're more into this stuff than I am. But, you know, about different diseases coming up from the frost as it thaws out in animal carcasses and people that have died from things like anthrax and smallpox and just to name a couple. My idea was that the birds pick this up and they bring it back down south with them. And when the birds migrate, you know, as we know, they, they come down from the Arctic in the fall and they go all over the world. And I wanted to find something that was believable in the story, something that would take that ancient pathogen and, and mutate with something that's been circulating around in the human population and, and be a completely new but deadly virus that we had no cures for. That's how I come up with the name. I did a little research on it, and, and that's where I discovered the term. I'd never heard of it before. I heard it in your program, because I've listened to your program, of course. That's where that comes from. I'll tell you that it is based on scientific fact that they found bacteria that were frozen in permafrost and when thawed out, they're actually able to get some of these bacteria to, to live and actually reproduce. So some hard scientific data. Of course, that antigenic shift is more than just an antigenic drift. In other words, instead of a virus, let's say, that has just a very, very small difference in terms of mutations from year to year, like many times the flu is, we have a virus in your particular case or a pathogen that winds up changing significantly enough that our population is just not used to it. Or actually, in your particular case, it may not have shifted much at all, maybe a new exposure to a fertile population for it to grow. Yep, that's there. And the other thing that I thought of at the same time is also in the news, there's been a lot of talk about how viruses have been uh, mutating and and our typical antibiotics have not been working or, or become less effective. They blame it on a lot of things, maybe the overprescription of antibiotics and, and the antibiotics in the food chain that, that's commonly used. And there's been a lot of talk about how that's, how that's going to affect us down the road. Yes, that's a very bad thing, and there are very few countries that are totally free of giving antibiotics to food-producing livestock. I think Denmark does, maybe a few others, but very very few of them do. And the truth is, is that they give the, these antibiotics not to treat infections in the livestock, but because there's a statistical difference in how fast they grow if you give them antibiotics. They grow faster and therefore get to market sooner. So it is, there is a profit motive as opposed to a medical motive in it. And of course, doctors have a tendency to prescribe, maybe I think over-prescribe antibiotics as well. And, and patients too have, say, have sort of an expectation that they're going to get, they feel they have an infection, that they're going to get an antibiotic because that is, of course, a cure. And some people think it's a cure-all for everything. But of course, viruses and other non-bacterial agents are oftentimes not affected by it. Now, let's talk a little bit about your book. The Pandemic Series is a trilogy, and that's what you call your, your trilogy. The book that we're talking about today is called Anagenic Shift. Tell us a little bit generally about it. Okay, so it, it takes a family that has a bit of a preparedness background. Again, the leader of the group, the father, John McIntyre, he's an older fellow, retired from the military. We have a group of people that are, are away. The husband and the family are up north hunting when this pandemic strikes. This is a very fast-moving pandemic. It, it comes in, and the government's a little wishy-washy. The CDC's a little wishy-washy about, you know, are we going to say something? Are we not? They've been beat up in the past for jumping the gun. They've been beat up in the past for underreacting. So everybody's sort of standing back on this for a little bit. And then the folks up north have, that are hunting have to get back home to the family. And the family's got to deal with a little bit of things going wrong. have to deal with the situation un until the others get back home. And again, that's a very fast-moving pandemic. 
people are completely caught off guard and a lot of people are trapped. The borders get closed up quickly and people get trapped and stranded and it's a fast moving pandemic. The other, the other dynamic of this is this happens as winter's coming on and it's cold or it's starting to get cold and, and that's, that's going to be a big effect on how the story plays out. I thought it'd be interesting to have a story that takes place in the winter. As the story progresses, a few more people come into the, come into the group because they live close by and they're going out trying to rescue those that have survived and, and take care of the farms and of those that have deceased. So to preserve the food chain for when spring comes, because they're going to need it. Terry, we meet a lot of uh, different characters in your book. Can you tell us just a little bit about favorites? Oh boy, favorites. That's a good question. I put qualities that I like in a number of different characters. Of course, John McIntyre, he's kind of the leader of the group. He's, he's supposed to be the strong personality, and he's got lots of experience and so on. And, and I wanted to have people in there that didn't have a lot of experience, that hadn't even thought of preparedness, and completely get caught with their pants down. And some of those are my favorite characters. And as we, as we move into book two, I'm going to take some of the weaker characters out of book one, and I'm going to make them stronger, and maybe take some of the stronger characters and make them weaker. And as the story progresses, that's just to give it an interesting, another bit of a dynamic. You've got a number of people that require medical help in your story, as you can imagine, off the grid, people that may not have good intentions around. You have people that, that get injured. So tell us a little bit about the importance of first aid training and medical knowledge in off-grid settings. I certainly know it. Tell me wh how you came around to realizing how important it is for first aid training and medical knowledge for your type of situation up Toronto. Oh. I've always been interested in first aid. That, the very, one of the very first things you do when you join the military, and I'm sure the U.S. military is the same as Canadian, is, is they teach us first aid. Because you're going to be called upon to aid your, your fellow soldiers. You're going to be called upon to aid the public. You're going to be put in those situations when people need help. And first aid is important. I got into it many years ago when my kids were small with the school board because the teachers didn't have first aid training. And I thought, how can this be? You know, people need first aid training. That's kind of where it comes from. But then you begin into a pandemic or, or any kind of an off-grid situation where things have gone bad and you don't have access to medical help that people take for granted these days. They go to the doctor for any little thing. Well, now you won't be able to do it anymore. And just, just a simple cut could lead to a serious infection and could cause your demise. So first aid, any kind of medical knowledge. And how important it is to have medical trained people in your in your group as a preparedness type person. If you had a mutual aid group, some of nursing skills, some of doctor skills. In my case, I use a veterinarian because I thought, well, let's throw that little dynamic in there. They're not a they're not a human medical doctor, but they're a veterinarian. They have very similar skills, and lots of veterinarians, especially those that live out in the country, veterinarians everywhere. So that's kind of where I got that concept from. Well, I totally agree with that. It is so important to be able to function. At least somebody in the family has to be medically prepared enough, not only have the first aid training and the medical knowledge, but also have the medical supplies that would serve as tools in the medical woodshed, so to speak. And so I, I think it's great that you mentioned some of the things that they do for some of these injuries sort of step by step in, in such a fashion that people can actually learn a little bit about how to deal with some of these things if they happen in, in an actual real-life survival setting. Now, your book, uh, Terry, is set in Canada. How do you think people in Canada have fared so far in the current pandemic? Certainly not anything as severe as the pandemic that uh, your characters are going through and 
And by the way, it's sort of interesting the way you use news reports to give us uh, running progress for the infection and, and how it's affecting people throughout the world. I thought the news reports would be kind of an interesting twist on the story. Uh, just something I thought of, I thought it'd be kind of interesting. But up here, you know, we've, we've fared reasonably well. We've only got a tenth of the population you folks have down there in the south, so that makes a big difference. So people aren't quite as close together. But it's the urban areas here that have been hit more so than it has out in the country. Uh, like up where I am, there's, there's been very few cases and very few deaths, most of them being in, in, in seniors' homes and residents where, where people live, and they're the most susceptible. Uh, that's a whole political discussion all on its own. That. If you had placed your characters in the heartland U.S. or even down here in sunny Florida where we are, you think you would do it any differently? No. Canadians and Americans are very similar in many ways. We, go, we all come from similar roots for the most part, and we're not that much different. I don't think things would be much different down there, except, of course, there's more people. So there would be that dynamic. And my idea of having it in the cold would be a slightly different pandemic, or idea, especially when it comes to Florida. You don't uh, have quite the snowfall we do. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very true, Terry. What you've got here right now is you've got book one. This is book one, Anagenic Shift. The second one is out also. What is that one called? second book is called Descent into Chaos. So where book one ends, we're kind of getting started in this pandemic. And, and book two is going to start where things really start falling apart, mostly down in the city, the big city here being in Toronto, and how that affects people that are quite unprepared and how they're dealing with that. And they have relations with the folks that are up north, their, you know, their family relationships. So these folks down south are trying to get out of there and, and end up back up north. All right. So you've got anagenic shift and descent Descent. into chaos. And they're in paperback. They're on ebook. You find them on Kindle. Tell us when we can expect the final book of the series. Well, I'm working on the final book right now. I want to have it done by the end of this year. So it'll be published and ready to go. Is this it for you? Is this like Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, pretty much one book and and that's it? Or are you going to be doing more books like this? Has your experience been positive enough that you're going to be doing some more for us? I'm enjoying it, actually. It's been it's been a lot of fun, and I have ideas. I figure this will be my retirement job once I, once I give up work, because I still have to do the nasty job thing right now. But when I get done, I want to write some more. And I have a few projects in my mind. I have in book two, at the end of it, I, I introduced my concept into a, another one, you know, without getting into too much detail. It'll be post-apocalyptic, of course. I kind of like that genre. And, uh, yeah, I have a few other ideas. I, I'd like to do one on, on an ice age or different ideas about financial collapse or political instability ideas that maybe you could form a book. I would certainly look forward to reading books from you in the future. Your your book, The Anagenic Shift, is certainly... Uh, a page turner and uh, look forward to seeing the, your second one which is available guys out there on Amazon you can find it on Kindle uh, Unlimited how else can our listeners connect with you I've got a Facebook page I just got Terry L Blackmore author uh, that's all I've done so far I really haven't got a blog or anything like that like some people do I'm pretty new at this they can email me if they wish or they can contact me through Facebook if they wish to do so my email address is just my name. It's Terry L. Blackmore at Hotmail.com. People out there should get a copy of Anagenic Shift and Descent into Chaos. And I'll, once you read those, you're going to be very interested in finding out where our characters end up in Canada. I see books that are in Idaho and Montana and things like that. So I guess they're close to Canada. 
But I'm not seeing actual Canadian. It's very interesting for me to look at it from the standpoint of a Canadian. For example, in one passage, you say, well, you know, we're going to see an explosion here like the 24th of May. And <laughs> for me, I had, to, I, I had to stop for a second. 24th of May, uh, that must be Canadian Independence Day. Am I right? Yep. Actually, it, it goes back a little bit farther than that. The 24th of May was the Queen's birthday back, back in the day. Queen Victoria's birthday. That's where that come from. It's, it, so it's Victoria Day, and it's always been a long weekend up here. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah that's where that one comes from. And it's, it's Columbus Day down in the U.S., I believe. I'm reading it from the standpoint of someone not from Canada, and just interesting to see some of the, some of the little differences that you see in, in your writing style that would be different from American authors. And I, find, I found it very entertaining. Well, Terry, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I hope that we give your books uh, a, a pretty good plug. Remember, you can find these books on Amazon. Terry L. Blackmore is his name, and the books are Anagenic Shift, Descent into Chaos. And uh, do we ha you have a title for the third one yet? Yes, I have a title for it. It's uh, going to be called Retribution. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for being on the show with us, and we wish you the very best in the future. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate being on there with you and Amy, and uh, thank you very much for having me. And I'll, I'll make sure I have a copy of book number two in the mail for you as soon as I get my hands on some. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Well. Yes, thank you. All right, take care. That's all that we have for this week's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast. We hope that you will tune in every week. We should be putting out a podcast, God willing. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.